वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक दिस इन टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द सीड्स ऑफ कम्युनिटीज विल थिंक अबाउट ह्यूमन कम्युनिटीज हाउ दे आर बॉर्न एंड हाउ दे आर शेप्ड बाय एंड शेप द वर्ल्ड अराउंड अस इज देर अ फंडामेंटल यूनिट और इनग्रीडियंट ऑफ ऑल कम्युनिटीज what exactly is civil society for does the colonizers stay out of natives affairs do all communities have to be constantly produced and how what does history teach us does the idea of a nation need the idea of communities what do the markets need where do elites belong is belonging necessary can genuine communities be formed intentionally and what is the long term future of communities and its avatars we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today professor neera chandok she is a political theorist and formerly a professor at delhi university she is also particularly interested in detective fiction Hindustani classical music and old Hindi film songs and films. Dr. Matangi Krishnamurthy, she is an anthropologist and teaches at IIT Madras. Her interests are anthropology of work, body, gender and sexuality. And Professor Gyan Prakash, he is a historian. His main interest is in intellectual and cultural history. is from princeton university so neera why don't we set the ball rolling with you um with the most basic but probably a somewhat difficult question of how do communities come to be what what's what's that stage what's that process what's the very initial days phases stages of a community coming to be and i know this is and one cannot do physics with these things but take us to that site what happens in your view how does one think of it formally somewhat let me work backwards from a particular set of political events that took place around the 1980s and 1990s and i would distinguish between community as a sociological entity as a group that shares certain meanings in common speaks a particular language but i can come to that later as i am sure other participants will and community which is conscious of itself as a political entity that can make demands upon the state either for power or for resources now this particular notion of a community um, which which is a political actor and that can place demands upon the table actually comes into being or comes into prominence around the 1980s and the early 1990s and there i think three sets of events that prompted the and eruption. you mean you mean this like around the world or in india around the world sure the first was a question of immigration and a new wave of immigration where migrants did not which refused to integrate as it is were or assimilate into the dominant culture So you had stories about Sikh gentlemen in Canada not wishing to take off their turbans if they were a part of the Canadian Mounted Police, right? Or uh, people who were uh, who belonged to Islam, right? And who wanted uh, time off five times a day to do their namaz. 
The second set of events that took place was the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 89. And the collapse of the Berlin Wall or the end of ex actually existing socialism set in motion a whole range of effects which resulted in the growth of ethno-nationalism. So countries fell apart, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, federations dissolved. And we see, just like it happened in the 19th century in multinational empires, we see the emergence of the community as a self-conscious cultural entity, uh, which has something in common, but which and, and, wants and, to put and, and it Nira, on you, the table. Nira, you use the word effect. So it's an effect of that or did, did those... Well, I think the process of becoming a political actor is also a cause and an effect because the purpose is to say, look, you guys, we don't have to take Sunday off, case of immigrants. Our holiday is Friday or Saturday, as the case may be. Sure. Or ethno-nationalism erupting in, in 1890-91. The Kashmir problems comes up in that time, as well as a whole range of ethno-nationalist movements in the rest of the world. And I think a third event which is of import for India is the rise of the Hindutva movement and the destruction of the Babri Masjid, which brought to home the emergence of Hindus as a community which has a religion in common, culture in common, language in common, but which also wishes to stake claim to political power. What's the common thread? The transition of communities from sociological entities into political entities, into political actors. Now, what happened was in political theory, which is where I come from, the fact that a political community or the nation state is composed of multiple cultural communities did a great deal to negotiate the homogenizing tendency of the nation state. I know the nation state is back with a bang after sure. uh, recent events. But that time, scholars started talking about the fact that a political community or the nation state is composed of different cultural communities and you have to take their sensitivities into account. When, so the whole notion of one nation, one culture, one language was kind of suspended for the time being. It's come back, but for a different set of reasons altogether. Interesting. So this is a great time to go to you, Gyan, because you obviously thought of the British in the colonial encounter in the context of India and other, other colonies and so on. Now, how does the question of community surface there in, in both the, how they dealt with conquest within courts as well as uh, just what the practical day-to-day -day, uh, well, implications were? In colonial situations, uh, the idea of community uh, comes up, I would say, around the 19th century, and it comes up against the background of an older discourse. And the older discourse was a contrast between civilization and barbarians. So before the language of community becomes important in the late 19th century, uh, People like John Stuart Mill, for example, you know, when he spoke about the distinction between civilized society and non-civilized society, for him the distinction was the law, that civilized societies are run by law, whereas non-civilized societies know no law. They run by norms. Yeah, so they have no norms, you know, they're barbarians. Okay? And so, and he considered uh, India as part of a non-civilized society. In the late 19th century, you begin to get a different kind of a discourse where there is a distinction between uh, community and society. So community is supposed to be based on some intrinsic territorial uh, bond between people. 
whereas society is considered firstly to be modern, uh, unlike community, which is supposed to be pre-modern. And society is based on certain kinds of uh, interests, contract, they may be based on kind of market relationships, uh, and was typically, of course, you know, associated with a modern society. And so India was seen as uh, a land composed of communities. And, and, they were, and, and how does one interrogate that factually? Um, you know, I know there's this, I mean, we're drawing a simple line and saying modern, pre-modern community society and so on. But if one were to ask the question with a factual intent, uh, how does one say how long have communities existed? I mean, is, is it, have they been there forever? Is it like a well, primordial thing? Well, I mean, the thing? idea was, I mean, uh, that these communities had existed since time immemorial. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why the idea... But that's an idea. I'm, that I'm trying to idea. understand if it's a fa- fact as well. Now, I know it's difficult, but... Um. Well, I mean, I think the interesting question for a historian is mm-hmm. uh, you are presented with uh, an idea that presents itself as, you know, already there, a matter of fact. So, so for example, when the British said, India is composed of tribes and communities uh, or tribes and castes, and that these have been since time immemorial. Okay. Uh, the interesting question for the historian is that if a community, for example, presents itself, a religious community, for example, presents itself as having always been there, as a historian, you know, uh, my first question is, how does this community activate itself? Mm-hmm. How does it come into being? Or when does it start seeing itself as a community? When does it present itself as, um, as a group of people which has had, you know, bonds for a very long time? Uh, so for, for me, the, the factual question really is uh, not to take at face value when the community says that it is a community, but to ask how does it present itself as a community? When does it start presenting itself as a community? And what purposes does it serve? Because, you know, one of the things about any community is that it presents itself as homogenous, that they share a common bond, whether it's language, whether it's religion, uh, whether it's caste, uh, territory, you know, the idea is that we are homogenous. And when you say what use does it, what purpose does it serve? Uh, I know Neera made this point about social and political. Is there always a political intent behind it somewhere? It, it, it need not be uh, a political intent, but in the very making and uh, self-constitution as a community, there are all kinds of uh, lines that are being drawn. So lines, let's say, gender relationship. Uh, so if you uh, create yourself as a, an homogenous community, uh, how do you then, within that community, uh, think of relationship between genders? Yeah. Uh, how do you think of relationship between master and servant? And yeah. so uh, all of those are part of the constitution of community. So although it presents itself as homogenous that they have common bonds, but they are also, of course, riven by various kinds of, of uh, distinctions and, and divisions. Uh, so, uh, and then at a certain point, it may be that a community that is formed 
let's say on the basis of religion or territory uh, may uh, become as uh, Nira was saying uh, may acquire a political purpose to it uh, and may become a political community okay uh, interesting and even in that transition between let's say what is called a sociological community into a political community even in that transition there are other kinds of lines that are being drawn so for example uh let's take the you know the example nira had in mind uh between uh how hindu community is transformed into a hindutva community right now obviously not all hindus are part of hindutva so there is a certain be- line being drawn between what kind of uh hindu becomes you know Hindutva sure. or part of the political community. Sure. So these kinds of distinctions are always, you know, being drawn. So as a historian, I would, you know, I would always ask. So, and has the idea of uh, the community itself uh, changed and transformed over a period of time? Just that idea. The idea of community uh, has changed. I mean, one of the interesting things about. Um, the understanding of community is that if you take many of the kind of associated concepts like nation civil society all of these have been subject to a great amount of study you know really conceptual interrogation of what is what is a nation but somehow the notion of community is not studied as much but community hasn't been subjected to the same kind of you know interrogation why so why do you think what what's the, what the well i think in the uh, it has something to do with modernity uh, because modernity is uh, based on an implied contrast between a pre-modern society where communities are based on some more archaic uh, relationships and modernity which is based on modern contractual individualistic kind of relationship Uh, so we'll, so we'll we'll uh, we'll go to Matangi in a minute. But what is your guess, Nira? Do you think I mean this idea of community? It hasn't been studied as much. Would you agree? Or you 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 know, um, you know, the notion of community is closely connected with that of civil society. You see, for the Greeks, for example, the state was natural to human beings. The state. The state. Aristotle would say the state is natural to human beings. By the time we come to the 17th century and Thomas Hobbes civil war in England, your relationship becomes contractual. Yeah. That means you enter into a contract to create a state. You enter into political society and civil society. From that time onwards, civil society is modern. Community is somehow seen as pre-modern because it is based upon blood and belonging. Right. Now, I'll let me push back Gyan's yeah. argument about uh, John Stuart Mill a little further. This distinction between civilized societies and pre-modern societies actually comes about in the Scottish Enlightenment. Adam Ferguson, Adam Smith, um, you know, they argued that civilized because you had the Scottish Enlightenment where trade comes first to Scotland rather than England. Right. And you, their argument was that civilized societies have civil society, which they meant as a property, not civil society as we know it now, as an associational realm, but where people are civil to each other, even though they are not tied by blood and belonging. Whereas India is pre-modern, it is bound by kinship ties. It doesn't believe in an abstract rule of law. It doesn't believe in contractual relationships. Now, this is 
argued by Adam Ferguson, Adam Smith, and later John Stuart Mill. The whole idea of community being based on blood and belonging and civil society based upon civic ties comes down till the present with somebody like Michael Ignatieff saying all these societies are pre-modern because they don't <laughs> have a notion of abstraction. Right. It is also bound up with my last point with the whole move from agrarian societies to modern urban societies. And in an urban society, rules have to be invented. Right, you don't have kinship rules. You deal with so strangers. the whole Gesellschaft, Gemeinschaft, which is a part of sociology, uh, move distinction becomes a basis for seeing community as not quite urban, not quite modern, and this is what India is about. Because we deal with strangers. <laughs> so, Matangi, your time, right? So, a historian and a political theorist is weighed in. What what balance does the notion of community have for you? And I think, I don't know if there's a way of looking at it at a more micro kind of level to see, maybe answer the, try and answer the same question of how it comes to be. What are the, how does it go to the birth of, of, of a community? What happens there? How is it born? The question of community is sort of something that anthropology is premised upon. So I think I'm coming at it from the other end of the conversation as well and picking up from this kind of seemingly natural opposition and the telos of the transformation from community to society, heralding you know the advent of modernity. And anthropology with its sort of hoary and gory past as Man Friday to colonialism, therefore is presupposes the existence of communities in order to do its work. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I think the term has not been subject to much scrutiny as much as other kind of conceptualizations also is that there is a, a kind of association presupposed between community and culture. That if there is community, there is a possibility of studying culture and that's where you can look at the micro-organization of everyday structures and everyday activities, elementary structures of kinship, what have you. And therefore, community is always sort of hovering in the background. There is an understanding that there are communities, that there is intrinsic feeling. There is something that unites them that gets subsumed under concepts such as culture. So you use the word feeling. So there's an affective, emotional side to the thing. There always has to be, but it's always concurrent with other kinds of structures that one sees fading into the background in the movement in anthropology itself, from an obsession with structures and functionalism and structuralism, the underlying rules of how a community functions, to post the 60s and the writing turn, to questions of feelings and affect, and in the advent of globalization, how is it that we can still have community as much as it seems to be breaking down and there's anomie? So while it has not been examined, its existence is essential to the functioning of ethnographic work and to anthropology. And then the question becomes, how do we reimagine the possibility of community? I think the question is whether whether it's an invented concept. It would be a little silly to say that communities don't exist, maybe in all likelihood it does. Um, but you know, sometimes when you come up with a concept that you go back and look at the world and kind of shine light on things and there, you see this thing there. You know what I mean? Is it an invented thing? Is it an artifact? I'm obviously, you're talking about social things, so most of these things are artifacts to begin with. In a sense, when we ask the question, is it an invention? It's the same as saying everything is a social construct. So yeah. sure, social construct, invented, doesn't make it false. So in a sense... 
might we be able to ask what are the modalities of invention? What are the conditions under which certain things seem to take on the nature of truth and intrinsic value, while in other cases they seem far more constructed or social or intentional as opposed to being intrinsic? So is it religion at one point of time or association at another point of time or forms of work or forms of body? In concepts, say, for example, that have come up in the history of science or critiques of science that speak about biosociality. Do bodies suffering a particular condition form a community of people that can only be understood by them, as opposed to others outside who don't possess those kinds of bodies? Now, as one looks at cultures across time and so on, I mean, are there, is there a kind of soil where communities take root more easily and otherwise, and, and where it doesn't? Like, is, are there some certain conditions which are more suited to communities forming I, I'm, I'm trying to make it more general than I know what we've discussed so far but how does one how does one answer that question a viability study so to speak as to yeah. what are the conditions of possibility for communities I'm not very sure at all I think unless they are placed in the context of certain kinds of things for example why is it far more common now to have certain kinds of communities based around religion than say 20 years ago and for that you have to look at the social and political ferment of the times and see what's breaking down what's becoming territorial, what are the anxieties of the time that requires people to bond around certain things. And I think that's where the feeling question comes in. What does a community do for people? Like a community is as community does, rather than excavating some kind of natural intent or feeling. And and Nira, do you think of communities as a sub-part of things? Like, for example, the notion of nation, and you mentioned nation-state a little while ago, now, does the idea of nation need the idea of communities? Um, I mean, are, are, is it, is it know, constituted by... We have to distinguish it? between a thicker notion of the community, which is what anthropologists deal with. And anthropology, sorry, but is a colonial discipline. It I was invented by... She the, mentioned it herself. Yes. So, yeah. and, um, and the thinner notion of community, which permeates at least writings in political theory today, when you are recognizing that a nation is... Actually, composed of a multiple multiplicity of communities. That is the first issue. I think you mentioned that a while ago. My question is whether the idea of a nation necessarily needs the idea of community. It means a political community. But there again, there are there's a big debate on the issue that she mentioned that are communities for people or do communities predate individuals? Right. You see, individuals form communities because they're speakers of a language. Mm -hmm. Now, the whole notion of having a language is that when I say something, you should be able to understand, even if you interpret it your own way. So instead of saying that the rain abated, I say the rain debated. But you know what I'm talking about. There's a certain commonality of language. Now, individuals are social. And this is a big move away from the Hobbesian notion that individuals are essentially individuals, that we have to create a society. Right. Increasingly, political theorists have said that individuals need society because we are all speakers of a language. And that is the way we become social, because we relate to each other. Now, there can be a thicker notion of sociability in the sense of marriage rituals, in the sense of music. In that way, a Punjabi from India going to Punjab in Pakistan will find there's a great deal in common because there is this large Punjabi community, particularly in the diaspora, which speaks a common language. A nation would speak the language of belonging to a larger entity than uh, 
people who believe in nationalism would like to say community is a nation. But the nation is a far larger territorial entity which is always mixed up with civicness, with political obligation, with laws, with a government, with governance. So that is the problem. I think we should keep the two apart. So, but in some, just to closing point, I think these are ideal types. And sure. I think you formulated the issue very well. Community, civil society, community, nation are ideal types. You have to work out the gray areas between them. So now, Neera, you you plucked out language a little bit. Now, does does language itself, Gyan, play a role? Again, going back to the British colonial time, is that what does what does the what does the idea of community or whatever the imagination of it or the conceptualization and of I it? I think one of the most interesting things about community, whether it's language or religion, um, that the concept of community always presents itself as prior to anything else, you know, just as even in political theory, you know, society was presented as anterior to uh, a state. And so, so once you have society, then you can have a social contract and then you can have state. Uh, in the same way, community is considered to be so primordial you know, so archaic. And that's why it's often associated with things like language, uh, things like religion, which is supposed to be, in a way, what makes us human. Uh, what makes us human is, you know, that we have language. Okay, uh, So, uh, so the, the... As, as one, you know, studies kind of history, you know, uh, Community always presents itself as being archaic. So even, let's say, a claim for a nation is often based on the idea that we were a nation even before yeah. any of you came. You yeah. know? So there was something intrinsic about us, about us as a national community. Um, yeah. So... So for a historian, you know, the question of often becomes is, when is that community performed? So the act of saying that we are a nation, it's it's a speech act. Uh, it's an act of performance. It's is, an act of, you know, bringing the community into uh, into being. Is the idea of community also a speech act? Yeah, I mean, it so is. when you say that we are a community based on, and you say we are a community based on... So that is the process of production. Religion, that is part of the speech act. You know, you are performing the nation. Uh, and so, you know, the, in the literary theorist Homi Baba, you know, he speaks about the nation in two ways. He says one is uh, a kind of a pedagogical act and one is a performative act. And the pedagogical act is saying, you know, me telling somebody we are a nation. Okay? And performing uh, performance is when you enact the nation into performance. So you enact a community into, into performance by doing certain kinds of actions, you know, holding a demonstration, a meeting, writing a nationalist novel, uh, mobilizing people around some idea. And it is through that... It, it's an you know it's an old idea. About you, would, you would agree with this, Matangi? Obviously, there's a process of production, rituals, roles, and so on. Um, uh, does this work again at microcosmic levels? Now you. you it's oh. very much the stuff of the microcosm because the enactment is an everyday act, mm. and again, 
it's interesting because the enactment does not produce stability necessarily. It does not mean that the community stays static or that the intentions of the community will play themselves out in the same way when it's enacted either, which means it has to be done all the time. Therefore, I think enactment really gets at the heart of something, that speech act of saying, and therefore can we ask the opposite question, which is that when a community is enacted, what would happen if that were not the case? Mm-hmm. What are the kinds of dangers or anxieties that that entity is allaying through the act of performance? What are the things that it does for them in that time and place? Which doesn't take away again, and the question of language is interesting because in the in the Sasorian sense, if language produces a world, if you share a language, it means that world is only available to speakers of that language and nobody else. So clearly there is some some kind of enactment that also hits at that kind of seemingly intrinsic feeling that they only speak and produce a world into existence. So there is a continuity very much in this kind of enactment being everydayness, even on the in the ethnographic level. And you sort of deduce a community through these acts. Now, so if, if that were to be the case, and if it happens to be the case today, it's been the case in the past with other languages, now English is kind of dominant today, right? So would that, because somehow the idea of communities don't scale, right? I mean, there are no, obviously the idea of a nation is larger than the idea of a community. How, how much can the idea of community scale? Do you know what I mean? How large can communities get? Is that a way of answering that question? If we consider communities not in the sense of because scale. again it depends on where it's anchored. If it's an anchored, if it's anchored in languages or kinship or family ties and so on, then there's only so far that you go. If we consider community in tandem with say the structures of post-fordist capitalism that are discombobulated and fragmented, and that is the modality of being. So, for example, English speakers around the world would have the capacity to produce in themselves a community that is not available to those who don't read and write English. There are forms of connection available there. We know this since globalization and the formation of international chat rooms, that those who were using Yahoo chat rooms and talking to each other were like pen pals of a particular time. So community can be as loose or as strong as one wants which is the thick, thin point that Neera is making. Absolutely. Right. So it really depends on our conceptual repertoire. What do we want to do with this idea of community and what are we deploying or looking at it for? So I don't know this, if there's a unitary way of saying, can it scale up? Is there something intrinsic? Do they exist? The factual mode of questioning, I think, will fail miserably for community because its continuity depends upon its kind of liability. But what keeps it stable? What keeps it going? My guess would be is that it does a lot of things. And we can see it even across our multiple disciplines. The conception seems to capture a lot of possibilities. You can have a small community, which is more than an interest group. So it's not just, yeah, which is not, not really coming interests. together strategically at the same time, while having fellow feeling for people that you have not met that are merely connected through communicative devices. So there are various capacities that the concept has, and I think that's part of its resilience. Where, where would you be on this, Gyan? What 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 keeps communities specific communities? Right? What keeps them going? What, I mean, I what gives them stability, density, size? I think the idea of a community and why it is persistent, uh, in spite of the fact that you know uh, we can you know, show that, you know, communities are not natural, that they are brought into being, they're enacted, they're performed. And yet the idea of community 
has remained remarkably kind of persistent. And it kind of reminds me of a, you know, distinction that, you know, Partha Chatterjee makes in his work uh, when he is talking about Hegel and he says, well, Hegel has this idea of um, uh, civil society, but that sort of hidden in his theory uh, or concealed is the place of family and love. Hmm. And that the idea of civil society has no place for family and love. And that is what is then associated with things like community. Now, if you think, I, I'm just thinking aloud over here. Um, uh, I think one of the reasons why community continues to have a certain kind of a purchase is that it offers a different kind of a mobilization than the one that is offered by, let's say, civil society or by market or individualism, uh, contractual relationship, that it is based on something else. A family is not a political entity. Right? Family is not, but you know, it. if you think more broadly about family, uh, that if family is not just only about power, but if family is about affect or family is about love, uh, then community or the persistence of community is uh, partly due to the fact that it alludes to that realm of relationship between human beings, which is not based on interests. Uh, that I relate to you not because our interests are in common, that we have common economic interests or common political interests, but there is something else that... Some so you're saying the nature of ties is familial... Yeah, the, or the nature of ties is that I connect to you because of some other affective relationship. Nira, you seem to disagree, so I'll let you come in there. Because Hegel made a very clear distinction. I don't know the context in which Partho Chatterjee has made this argument, but what has struck me about Partho Chatterjee is that he claims to be a postmodernist, but all the time he engages in the very modern notion of engaging in binary opposites. What Hegel said was we have to have a civil society because this notion of freedom is very new. It belongs to modernity. What shall our civil society look like? It cannot look like the family because love in the family is unreflective. Women won't agree. Feminists won't agree. But that was Hegel's notion. It cannot look like the Greek polis because of which he was a great admirer because there also there is no notion of freedom. So you have to have civil society as the theater of history where competing self-interest is kind of resolved through the construction of certain institutions. So civil society, he sees, as liable to be uncivil. I'm using it in the strictly technical meaning of the term. So you have to create institutions, otherwise this is like a caged tiger that will tear society apart. Why? Because there is self-interest. With modernity comes a market and with the market comes self-interest. So you have to, because civil society has for Hegel to be the preliminary state for the universalist state to appear. So all tensions between universality and particularity have to be controlled by his idea of the estate or institutions such like that, which control self-interest and which create a universality or shared interest. The interesting point is that communities are today, as we see in India, constantly being invented. To give you a very simple example, the government of India has a policy of reservations. 
you have the notion of castes being split up into sub-castes because each of them saying we are not like the Mala Madigas in uh, Andhra Pradesh. We are not like that. Give us separate reservations. Or in the Northeast, when the Nagas organized and said, we don't want to be a part of India. They told the British government, we are, we are, culture is very different. Language is not only the spoken word. Language is culture. So if I say to you, Yudhishthir, you'll know exactly what I'm speaking of. Dharamraj, he made very bad choices. I mean, he made the wrong choices all the time, apart from gambling. That's why also, I let him be. <laughs> that lie about Ashwatthama. <laughs> and look at the results. Dronacharya dies. Ashwatthama gets crazy. He picks up his, uh, his, his weapon and kills all the children of Pandavs. That's and Yudhishthir is left without a kingdom. <laughs> By the end of it, he says, what have I fought the war for? So in a way, Yudhishthir is known as a Dharamraj, but he made very bad choices. But still, his language as culture means we understand when we talk about Karn in the Mahabharat, valor, honor, courage, you know, yeah. Arjun, as somebody who was rather pampered, but yeah. very courageous. So in a way, language communicates because we have shared meanings. The notion of the nation becomes relevant when it is attached to the state. When the nation stays, we have a right to self-determination. We have a right to our own state. French Revolution, American Revolution, English Revolution. But then you have an ethnic community saying we have the right to our own state. And that's via the right of self-determination. Because we are a people. Now, this notion of the people, it is said, is one of the biggest political fictions in political science. Because before Ivor Jennings, before you say, let the people decide, somebody has to decide who the people are. Who are the people for a government? So, in a way, these are invented. They are created as political actors to make a claim upon. I mean, how is it in 1990, the Kashmiri people came together? to say we want self-determination after so many years. Yes, Matangi. So I wanted to respond to a couple of things in the conversation. One, of course, this question of community and filial feeling. And in a sense, I mean, this is a concept very dear to anthropologists, the idea of kinship upon which the entire discipline is presupposed. Right. In some ways, it seems to me that community has resonance because it does not need kinship. And yet it has the capacity to produce the kind of affect that family does. Right? So, in a sense, I think there is a certain kind of way in which we can imagine them together affectively without imagining it structurally. So, it's interesting and I want to follow up on that. And I wanted to pick up on what Neera was talking about. One, in relation to language and shared meaning. I'm not even sure if that works symbolically and otherwise because Ravana in the south of India invokes a whole different set of meanings than in the north of India. Absolutely. And therefore, what happens if a community organizes itself around these oppositional meanings and in what time and place? So what, so what is more fundamental? That's the question, right? I think we are sort of hitting at it from different angles, talking about what is the moment of enactment of community and let's imagine that moment rather than thinking about it as a stable, reified sure. pronouncement. And I'm thinking aloud as we're going along. And I think so community comes about clearly with a certain kind of need. Something's going on in that moment that says. And I, I want think that's to, the crucial word, right? Need. There's a need. And I want to 
stack it with the question of identity politics, which becomes very important in the last 30, 40 years or so. And I'm thinking of Wendy Brown's book, States of Injury, that says in order to be seen by the state, you have to enact yourself in a particular fashion. Otherwise, you're illegible, you're invisible. And community becomes a form of legibility or visibility. And it has to be made on the basis of some intrinsic meaning. Right? So it is invented. But it harnesses an existing repertoire of language, symbols, shared meaning. Because in you want to be heard. To, but you want to be seen and heard because there are resources in play. Nation states are conflictual entities that are awarding resources based on you declaring forms of belonging. And therefore, politically, it becomes very important to be seen as a community and forms of affiliation arise, are produced, strengthened at very key moments. Are there other instances in British colonial history, for example, Gyan, and I go back to that, where some of this has gotten enacted, played out, which helps one think about how that process happens? Because obviously someone, somebody turns up at a shore and analyzes you or thinks of you whichever way. But d does that, on a post-facto basis, lead to existence or coming together of communities that I don't, don't really exist? I only speak about the British colonial sure, times. But, sure, sure, uh, sure. In fact, I wanted to pick up on something that, you know, Please. she said, um, with referring to um, identity politics and, you know, the, the need for various identities to be uh, legible or which demand demands to be heard. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, why is it in the last 20 or 30 years, this has become far more pronounced? You know, um, and that uh, communities or communities come up and uh, refer to their sense of injury uh, in order to demand rights. So what could the alternatives be? If not a community, then what? Like it, it could be. So you could make a political demand based on uh, a political desire rather than identity. Right. And that is the shift. And, and do you find that surprising? Because it seems to be successful. It seems to be working all around to, I mean, of course, it's not 100% No, it's been happening in the last, you know, 20 and 30 years. And, you know, and I think um, Wendy Brown's kind of new book uh, called Undoing the Demos, she, um, argue, she makes a kind of... Uh, an explanation for it. Why is it that we are seeing increasingly today um, political demands based on some idea of identity coupled with this sense of resentment? So communities come up, Hindutva is a good example of it, uh, communities come up which claim that they have been injured through history by an illegitimate elite uh, that has, you know, deprived them of their rightful position and to which they respond with a great sense of ressentiment. Does the political desire approach ever work? Has that ever been tried? Would you know? Because it's that need-want distinction, right? One is to simply say, I want it, the other is to say, I need it, right? That's yeah, the, uh, the political, you know, political desire has been there. For example, I mean, very broadly speaking, I'm not... Sure. Thinking of particular movements. Uh, but if you think of communism. Right. Uh, it's a desire. and That's a good point. It's, it's a politics based on a certain desire. It's not based on identity. 
you know. That's a good and point. The idea is that we will uh, reach a stage of this kind of a communitarian society, you know, where and which is based on a complete notion of a political desire, which is if you think of kind of ideal types, it's radically opposed to this politics of injury, resentment, identity, right. community. Okay. Uh, and one of the reasons I think why we are witnessing more and more of this uh, kind of politics, resentment across the world, um, we see in the United States where you have, you know, the white majority saying that we've been deprived of our rights by, you know, uh, sure. by minorities and immigrants and so on. So it's it's there everywhere. And so you have to ask, why is it that politics has who, kind who of shifted? Who is not aggrieved? Everybody seems to be aggrieved. Everyone Everybody seems, seems to, to be, be aggrieved. Aggrieved, but you know, the, uh, <laughs> as someone said uh, to me after 2014 elections, yeah, he said he's never seen a more angry group of victors. So, <laughs> so you are victorious, but you're also angry. Um, and that is this kind of politics of resentment where you are victorious and you want your uh, opponents to grovel, to now, bite the dust. Now, purely at an abstract level, mm -hmm. why does this work? I mean, this, this, let's call it identity politics or whatever this community appealing on the basis of need, injury, resentment, it seems to work to, to a meaningful extent. Why does it work? I'm being skeptical, but I think as a hard-headed political theorist, I think community is a good way of glamorizing a set of demands because the moment you say we are hurt, you, you are prevented from asking questions about the way that community treats its women the way that community treats its so-called lower castes, the divisions within the community, yeah, the Yeah, you create this homogenized it, one It whole is a homogenization of a diverse... And what does a community mean? I am a part of an academic community. All of us are. Right. But I'm also a part of, I suppose, Punjab, which sure. is, you know, we... Uh, Everybody has multiple memberships. No, we yeah. all have multiple. So this creation of a homogeneous community on the notion that we are hurt, it started with the Khalistanis. And then it's, it's coming on to, you know, we are hurt. I mean, too bad. And purely as a strategy. It's a strategy to cover up divisions within a community because community is a romantic word. There is certainly shared meaning. There are contested meanings over language. But the point is there are social divisions which is taking away from the notion of class and taking away from the notion of gender or even that of caste. This Hindutva notion takes away or abstracts. Uh, well, Hindutva has nothing to do with Hinduism, but it's based upon Lowe's notion that everybody belongs to the... What about the way you've treated your own people? Or what about the way you treat your... Sure. So it, it prevents the asking, I think, of meaningful questions. And it's a very clever political strategy because it shows a notion of belonging where there is actually exploitation. I'm thinking aloud and throwing more words into this unholy mess in a sense, but I also want to counter Neera's hard-headedness by talking a little bit about what feminism did with raising consciousness and speaking about sisterhood as a certain kind of community formation which hadn't existed at that point of time. To speak about women as a community that are distinguished through their singular experiences, which did something at a point of time to counter precisely the ways in which certain communities did not think about how they treated their women. 
to speak about a common condition of hurt shared by people that was still real and to your question as to why does this work and you think about the ways in which the current political because situation because it's some kind of a political negotiation at least that's the that's the register on which we're discussing this right and i so, want to take that notion of hurt seriously i want to take it seriously to say is it based on certain kinds of agglomeration of floating affects if they say there is a certain kind of hurt where does this come from ludicrous as it might seem absurd as it might seem this clear feeling in various right of center movements of emasculation of feeling like their being in the world is being challenged their very ethos is being challenged i think we have to locate it historically and look at the ways in which certain kinds of nation states have been formed as well as what they are in the current moment which is not to say it's true or false sure but what are they gathering in order to make a case for hurt what is their material yeah sure you know i'm really, I, i thought of the french philosopher voltaire he said if you can make people believe absurdities you can make them perform murder <laughs> no this is the one of the biggest absurdities hindu community has been hurt because there is a babri there was a babri masjid because mathura because of benares and it's created a notion of victimhood that completely misses out on the fact that 80% of india's population belong to the hindu faith but divided by caste divided by subcastes and divided by gender sure now in a way this whole notion of hurt is a mythology we have to look through this and you know in a way this dates back actually to khalistan and everybody went around saying we are very hurt what okay 84 was reason for the sikh community to be hurt but in a way abstraction we deserve our own state we are very hurt seems to me to be an absurdity sure that's fine why don't we travel to a different world the world of call centers now obviously it's 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 less emotionally charged than these things that we're discussing you'd be surprised would you think that it's a community of sorts i would definitely think it's a community of sorts and one that i might not have speculated as a community before i started doing ethnographic work and i think it's become a community that is uh, that is pulled together through circumstance through the circumstance of a very particular form of work that they've all been part of now what's peculiar to call centers because i mean you know there are obviously all kinds of workspaces workplaces around um on the surface of it there is a lot that is peculiar to call center culture and you have to bear in mind i'm locating this in call center culture from 2000 to 2005 because currently it's become rather banal right. to speak about call center culture it has so much in common with it culture sure. or startup culture but in the early 2000s it was very much a performative economy mm-hmm. was very much this kind of economy that was all about subterfuge and controversy young men and women are working together in the night they're all sort of you know unchained and let loose and all sorts of orgies have been carried forth in these dens of vice sort of narrative and the did idea it, did, i mean at least to the extent that you studied it and thought, thought about it did it have formal markers of whatever a community had some kind of a structure um because obviously this the attrition in these call centers is super high right and the the people who come and go all the time but structurally but, they but were something, all but something remains stable structurally they were all young men and women they were between the ages of 18 and 21 mostly they all worked together at night they all belonged to certain kinds of english speaking lower middle class to middle class populations 
They shared certain histories of schooling, certain kinds of backgrounds, and certain orientations towards what they were looking to become in the world. But there was an affective charge. There, there was. definitely was an affective charge, and often in unexpected ways that they themselves might not have foreseen when entering the call center. But I think the temporal nature of it, the nature of the work, the kinds of pressures and stresses that it exerted on these young men and women most certainly produced an affective community, if not anything else. And also the kind of fictive kinship that one sees in corporate culture. Looking out for each other, they only have each other for support systems, they are unmoored in a city, this is their only form of connection because they're sleeping in the day. So the only other people that they see are other workers at night. So affectively and structurally, they were held together as a community with changing membership. But who are marked by certain experiences. I actually just wanted to get back to this question of hurt <laughs> and community. Because I was thinking of an, of an example where the idea of hurt can help to create an idea of community but can also be used very positively. And here I have the example of Ambedkar. So Ambedkar, for example, refers to the experience of humiliation, indignity, uh, exploitation, and so on that Dalits have experienced. And on the basis of which he, you know, propounds the idea of a Dalit community. But he uses the idea of hurt and humiliation to project an idea of democracy and equality. So here, hurt does not lead to a, this uh, kind of identity politics that, you know, our what, community... What, what, what does it lead to? It leads to a politics of equality and democracy. But it leads to a desire. Isn't that a demand inherent there somewhere? Isn't that yeah, another kind of community with a political kind no, of ambition? So what he's using hurt to kind of leap forward and ask for equality. Uh, in the same way, you spoke about sisterhood, for example. Now, in in feminist movement, also the experience of gender discrimination was then used to project a kind of a utopian desire for sisterhood. That right. you can build a community on this sort of notion of sisterhood. Again, there's a kind of a demand for equality. Now, that kind of, you know, uh, use of hurt uh, and and victimization to uh, a political movement and desire for political movement uh, is different from the contemporary moment of, um, you know, the idea of uh, victim politics, where you don't ask for equality and a democracy or some kind of a universal goal that, you know, would benefit everyone. You now demand for a victory of your com community over some rival community. So it becomes us versus them rather than a common pursuit. And this is what I'm uh, suggesting, you know, what democracy has now become where it becomes an issue of winners take all. If my community is victorious, that means I've slain my enemy. Uh, so democracy is not really a pursuit of common good, uh, not pursuit of equality, not a question of political desire, but uh, a question of winning. No wonder Trump talks about, you know, you'll win so much that you'll be tired of winning, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's the idea of democracy over there. You know? 
so what's the future where where is this headed this whole idea of a community is it is it necessary to have a sense of belonging it sounds obvious but i slow to ask that because in a way this idea of community or whatever no one is to do this as a political act and uh, you know and hurt resentment and some of those things but what would be the opposite of it could there be a world without communities you know to answer the first part of your question is it necessary to belong yes but then let's ask the other question what does it take now to belong what are the communities available for the taking what are the conditions of belonging and what is the work you have to do in order to be included because communities automatically means that communities also exclude as much as they include because the anxiety on the other side of this globalized world where nobody belongs to nothing right and the anxiety of anomy the anxiety of alienation the idea that we're all going to die alone right and therefore the obvious answer is yes but what is the nature of the community that is available now for membership and increasingly it seems to be slightly frightening Mm-hmm. If we follow from what Gyan is saying, the idea that democracy is winner takes all, then we all want to belong to the community of winners. You want and to be on the winning side. And ethically, what does it take to have to be on that side? What does one have to give up in order to belong? So, not the wishful question, but what is your read assessment analysis of where this is headed? Next hundred, two hundred years, three hundred years. Where is this headed? not 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 your wish of where it should go i think one that is that's in the air already um where is the sadder gun the historian of uh, 300 years later well, 400 years later y- you know the idea I, of I, uh, I, i know there's no t loss it's not really logical i get all of that yeah, but, uh, yeah so, what, so what, make uh, make make a prediction so the idea of community as you know home and hearth and fullness and plenitude i think that's dead Um, it's dead I, yeah i mean i think we and we are constantly even if that is uh, something that some people desire for but it's always in kind of a tension with you know the freud's term of unhomely so even if you try to feel at home you're always in this condition of unhomeliness which really means a, a condition of estrangement alienation destabilization that is the the condition of being which doesn't mean that you know we move from one pole to the other but that you have to constantly negotiate between this sense of unhomeliness and feeling at home um that is i think our contemporary condition where you know things are in flux and somehow you have so what to, happens next well you have to learn sure, to you... live in in flux and you know become at home in it you know at home in the unhomely what's the future nira you know it bothers me the future of the it idea of community is not something specific of a community yeah. is that i have special obligations towards people who are like me they speak my language they belong to my religion so on and so forth it takes away from the fact of what is it what does it mean to be human to be human is to relate to humanity even if they are not like you but that is also a kind of imagined community no no you don't have to be a community you see modern societies are based upon two very uncomfortable facts a competitive market system and a competitive electoral system and you have imperfect altruism right right this this notion of belonging can be 
satisfied by the illusion that you belong to a community. And therefore, I have special obligations towards them. But doesn't that take away from my obligation towards, for example, people who've been disprivileged for reasons not within their control? And therefore, do I not have an obligation to them by the fact that we are members of a common humanity? In the 90s and the early 21st century, we were talking of a guarded global community where you had obligations towards others. Now we are moving inwards. And when you move inwards, you've already created an outsider by saying we are a community, you're the outsider. And then you start looking for, for people who have harmed you from within. You turn inwards. You know, it, it, is, it is like that play, The House of Bernardo Alba. <laughs> where you close up the house and women start attacking each other. Yeah. You know, it's scary. And he meant it as a metaphor for fascism. When you close in your boundaries, you have fascism. But you fascism, don't relate to other people. But fascism has no communities, right? It has no sub-communities. Fascism is based upon the notion of a community. But one, what was big, one large community, was? right. What was it about? We are communities of blood. The others are foreigners. So I'm scared of that. You know, whenever leaders in India raise up their hands and go on bandem, it scares the life out of me. It reminds me of those movies we used to see about Nazism and fascism. Fascism is based upon an imaginary community of Heidegger, who, which is scary because they only speak of blood and race. They don't speak of outside. Why should you not enlarge your horizons? Don't be like the house of Bernardo Alba. I think in Hindi it was called Rukma Bhai Ki Haveli. El Kazi <laughs> had created that. And in a way, you see, when you cre when you turn inwards, you're constantly looking for enemies. And this is what is happening to India. Not only are you looking for people who eat beef, you're also looking for people who are not following the codes of the community. So what do you believe in? Carpenters? I don't understand this. Sorry, What's I find What's the it, future? The future I see years out, as a future of out. infinite loneliness. And we have to learn to how to live with ourselves, but we also have to learn to reach out to people who are not like us. That is the genius of you. What is so great about reaching to, out to people who are like us? Let me talk to somebody from, from some far corner of India and I'll know what is my humanity. What is, what is so human about relating to people who are only like us? I Sorry, I, I find this very scary. I find it as reminiscent of utopias, and utopias are scary. Are utopias scary? Utopias what's, are what's tremendously interesting. I'm not scared of most things because they're all interesting and we're all going to die anyway. <laughs> but I will say this, that if, if you're looking to see if loneliness is going to be the affective state of the times, then perhaps we can also look at other kinds of modalities of being. Solitude friendship in tandem with questions of community and new imaginative ways of drawing community. Uh, it's Lauren Ballant who I think in this beautiful work called Cruel Optimism says that in general people are desperately looking for, for things to correct their lives. Something will fall into place and then my life will be okay. She calls it the mise-en-scene fantasy. And if community is the sort of mise-en-scene fantasy, we need different ways of imagining community that have the capacity to be expansive not exclusive. Hmm. And if we have membership in multiple communities, then maybe we should keep expanding them as opposed to saying one at the cost of the other. And that's the kind of future, you know, I would like to bet upon. Terrific. 
terrific. That's a good note to end the song. Thanks to all of you for making it, and we look forward to having us soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.